Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. There is a crucial relationship in the UK between universities and industry. How does research and technology developed in an academic setting scale up and move through to eventual commercialization? Universities, industry, funders, and central government all have a role to play in this space. With me to discuss the university business interface is Rory Miles, Innovation Fellow at the Centre for Enzyme Innovation in the University of Portsmouth, and a member of the Foundation for Science and Technology's Foundation Future Leader Scheme. Rory Miles, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kevin, and thank you for inviting me. So universities have been working for at least 30 years in this area of innovation and commercialisation. What are the key challenges in bringing technology from academia to industry? Why is it so hard? That's a really interesting question, one I think a lot about. And I kind of drafted him as thinking a few kind of key points. I mean, there are many more, and this is really a quick brainstorm. But as usual, funding, I mean, universities talk about it all the time. A lot of businesses have limited R&D budgets. I would say in the UK, it's not prioritised often enough within industry to have it separately. We're reliant on uh, government funding to actually do this type of innovation work. It's also difficult to recruit talent and staff-based teams. I think, again, we've been discussing recently in the FFL around the research culture strategy. But at the moment, there is very little movement between academia and industry as well, which doesn't mean that you get the people that you need at the right time. And it's difficult to fund actually reaching a point of exploitation because often with the way that grants work, you need at least three to four in a really competitive process. And actually the chances of funding your whole way through these three to four grants is really minimal. I think appetite and reward is also key. And although there's been some movement towards modernizing academic and professional service roles, publication still feels like it really rules within universities. And to me, that often feels like it's really at odds with the aims of knowledge exchange. I'm going to talk about knowledge exchange rather than innovation, which we use in higher education as a way to describe any activity which creates impact outside of the academic world. So I almost think it's easier to use an innovation, which is often a bit more confusing. I think it's a perception issue. Applied research is still often not maybe seen as pure research. It's not blue skies, but actually it can have a real impact. And also it's constantly moving priorities. We constantly, I guess, universities within policies are said to do this thing. And then five years or even less than five years later, the whole priorities shift again. So it's really hard to develop a solution within this constantly moving boundary as well. So a number of issues to pick out of that. I mean, you work at the Centre for Enzyme Innovation at the University of Portsmouth, which is a specialist unit within the university. And most universities have some combination of specialist units on a centralised university level and within faculty or or, or departments working at this interface. So what what do these teams do and, and why do universities have this kind of specialist team? Well, as I'm saying, my role is a pretty strange one. I'm really the only person in uh, my school or even in the centre focused fully on innovation and knowledge exchange. And there's actually really one, only one other person at the university who does a pretty similar role to me at the same time. I think to kind of summarise it, make it clearer, the central teams in the university really do all this really hard essential work that enable the uh, knowledge exchange activities so negotiating contracts ensuring our legal obligations networking with kind of the key teams of funders and coordinating our response to kind of the national frameworks like the knowledge exchange framework and the research excellence framework to, to name two that we're currently going through 
And I think these faculty and school-based staff are starting to emerge. And I think we're still working out what does that look like in relation to the central teams. Often it's smaller in terms of group of academics that we work with and also the technologies that we support. Again, some of the similarities are enabling the partnerships, um, identifying and facilitating them, marketing and communications, and working with the teams there. But, but really, I guess I, I describe it as spinning money plates in my case. But I think I'd say my role is pretty hybrid and almost disruptive of what I would call traditional academia, because actually I'm simultaneously working to support people to do knowledge exchange, but also trying to do projects to create better opportunities to do knowledge exchange at the same time, which often these school-based staffs have a bit more freedom to do as well. And through this deeper understanding of a wider remit of technologies, I guess in my case, I think about the plastic recycling enzymes we work on as a whole, whereas actually I'm working with academic colleagues who focus on crystallization of proteins and computational chemistry, as opposed to a kind of entire entity of technology. But I think as well, I've really become interested recently in enabling knowledge exchange and social impact through STEAM projects. So inclusive of the arts, but also in design STEM, really as a mechanism where we can start to use different well, different disciplines to actually communicate to people how you could adopt a technology and almost aid that transformation process when you actually want to implement disruptive technology. But I think there is a huge opportunity to, I guess, further professionalize these different types of knowledge exchange roles because there are some brilliant academics who do knowledge exchange, but there's also many with no experience or also no appetite to do it. So it's almost how do we create that academic freedom, but also help the staff um, enable to do it. And I know there are a lot of examples from a number of universities in the UK where they've started to look at professionalising these types of roles. And do you think that this professionalisation is leading to an appreciation within the academic community about the different opportunities for impact within their research and a closer collaboration between them as academics and professional services and and different support activities? I think there is still a long way to go. I think there's still a lack of awareness and and almost nervousness of about changing the way that you work. It's kind of, I I almost think that when you work up through the linear academic system, it's you care and I funding is constantly in your headlights. But actually, we're trying to introduce people to consider different routes of development. And I think as well, one of the things which I've enacted since joining has been actually working with end users of the technology at a really early stage of development because I went in and went well how are you going to know if it's going to work if you don't trial it at an early stage Uh, but I think there are also brilliant examples which you can look at Uh, so SEP squared for example which is the and I can't remember what the acronym stands for but uh, based out of University of Southampton and Bristol they actually get uh, early career researchers and some of the time for, I think it, well, I was six months to a year, but to talk to a hundred people to actually refine their market proposal. And I just think that's brilliant because that's exactly the kind of thing I think more people need to do. And I think it ties as well into the emerging responsible innovation. I sat in a meeting the other day where I went, okay, so with that hat on, what a benefit could this early stage project give to people? Because I think it's just being conscious before you submit a grant of could this be useful if it's successful? And I think if we can do that at an early stage, you're more likely to get these transformative solutions come through the pipeline. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges of actually doing this knowledge exchange. I won't call it commercialization, I'll call it knowledge exchange. Now you've used that term. One of the challenges certainly is scaling up from 
small scale works in the lab to something that can be commercial. What are the difficulties of scaling up? What are the pitfalls as universities get involved in this? I'm not sure I have long enough of a podcast to actually describe all of the reasons. And I think the standard reasons I kind of presented at the beginning, so funding, building the right team, so I'm not going to go into those again. But I think specifically from a biotechnology perspective, we have huge scientific barriers that we need to overcome to actually get to this, what I call industry-ready stage. Uh, we're almost working in the dark in quite a lot of respects. Um, and we came at this problem of recycling plastics using enzymes completely serendipitously. And there's a lot of kind of dark space in the knowledge gap. So we're almost trying to do the fundamental research, but also simultaneously try and get it to an industry stage. And balancing those two priorities is actually pretty tricky. We also have really long development times. And I know there's a lot of work to speed those up, but particularly in biotechnology, we're looking at 10 to 15 years quite frequently for implementing technologies. But I think as well, it's you also need the facilities and skills to actually scale it and you need to secure the funding to get those, which makes it a bit longer again. And the whole time you need to make sure that there's uh, both organisational buy-in at the university and the market demand. And that's going to change over time. So it would, in all that space where it's spinning around, I guess it's having that awareness outward of what does it look like. And specifically in the context of plastics, there was a lot of different initiatives. It's a case of, are we going to continue to use fossil fuels? What are we going to continue to use fossil fuel dry plastics for? Or are we going to reach bioplastics? And do we need end-of-life solutions for those bioplastics? And, and I guess that's partially what I then end up spending my time keeping track of to make sure that we know what's going to go in, in industry. And I guess the biggest the different challenge as well is getting industry interest in early stage research, or at least enough to get investment in it. I think it's still because of the risk aversion, it's difficult to work at that early stage with industry. Well, let's talk about some of those issues. And effectively, people talk about bridging the gap between the early stage of research, technology readiness levels one to three, and the this more, more commercially ready research, sort of seven to nine. And it's this four levels four to six, the so-called valley of death, that people perhaps overuse that term a little bit. What's the way that this can improve. There's a role for government in here, clearly, in terms of funding, but also in terms of policy and shaping things. So how do we make this better? I mean, how's the UK doing, I guess, overall anyway, but but how do we then make it better? So I know it's most frequently cited around material four to six, but I think in reality of having seen it, it's it's much more variable. And, and actually it depends on the time that you're actually going for the funding, for example, and actually, the, I guess it's kind of a field of technology and attractions to that challenge. But I think there's a lot of interesting talk in government about this, um, particularly outlined recently in the R&D roadmap. And I'm interested in how this might trickle down solutions that prevent the value of death. And I'm not sure whether the worst of UK at bridging it, but there are obviously examples of countries that actually do it better, um, such the US. But there are huge differences between the UK and the US research innovation ecosystem. The US, most of their research is performed through the private sector and we're the opposite in the UK as well. But I think in terms of promotion from a government angle, it's more collaboration, less competition. And I think the global challenge is we need experts from all fields, professions actually working together. I think there's still such a focus on competitive grants, particularly in an academic setting, that it just really makes it difficult to collaborate. And I think there's obviously academic prestige to some extent can also feel like blockers. And I don't know how we get past that. I mean, I have plenty of crazy ideas about how we can get to that stage. 
in a context as well, we, we like to think globally um, within the CEI, but actually working and scaling solutions across borders is still difficult. And working and doing these international collaborations is really challenging, both from a legal context, gaining traction with different people. We do need to have a mass kind of look at the enablers and blockers. And I know as well, looking for that as well, but then to actually look at what those policy solutions coming out of those could be. You mentioned global challenges, and earlier you talked about whether or not companies would be using fossil fuels and plastics in the future. And this is all this future looking, I guess, links to the big climate change agenda and net zero and and so on. And if we are to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, there will need to be much closer collaboration between academia and industry. How do we get there? What are the steps that need to be taken in this whole area of sustainability to to really bring academia and industry together? Another challenge, but I think it's I think it's having those evidence based targets and also ensuring that everyone aware of them is almost step one. It's what are we aiming for as the UK? What do we expect industries to do? What do we expect councils? to do what does everyone within the innovation research ecosystem need to achieve, particularly in terms of net zero, and base that off of uh, scientific evidence where it's available. And this show I see all the time is the adoption of technology, uh, particularly in the net zero space that's ready to go, rather than investing in less mature technology that, that could be lower and, and has been demonstrated to be lower in energy and in greenhouse gases. I sometimes I get worried it's short-sighted to scale a technology which a lot of people don't think is a final solution without doing the full life cycle analysis of what does it look like scaled. And I know in certain areas of this, there has been forward thinking uh, kind of in the hydrogen space, there's a realization we're not always gonna stick with uh, blue hydrogen, we'll eventually need green hydrogen if I got that one the right way around. Uh, but I think there is that type of thinking going on as well. Um, but we need that in every space. We need to go, okay, what's the short-term solution? What can we do now? But what does it look like? and be clear about it because sometimes we just see kind of the funding opportunities drop off for a technology, which is good because it's progressing, but I think it needs to be a clearly written strategy that that's what we're kind of thinking. And that is going to change over time because technologies can suddenly emerge out of somewhere. Well, I wouldn't even say they do emerge. It's they, they're usually there. It's just people aren't aware of them because usually people have been working them as a kind of side project in the lab for years. And I think we need to balance this across the need for urgent solutions. It's kind of what, what can we do right now, but what are we going to think in the future, but not lose traction on getting um, a better solution. And again, I think the, uh, particularly in this space, the extended producer responsibility and policy interventions, we're undergoing a climate crisis and the funding needs to be there and the, the ability to collaborate and everything needs to be there to actually, but in addition to that, we need to drive the behaviour from both the consumer and industry level to actually adopt these solutions and create that demand. Um, and I guess addressing the market failure is kind of, we need those policy solutions when actually market strategies don't enable us. And I think it's a tricky space we work in innovation because we want commercially reliant solutions but also within the sustainability and that zero space, it's for public benefit. And I think that's the, where we need to balance both kind of requirements. No, I certainly agree with all of what you've just said. I want to tease out a little bit what you think the role of government is, not just in the big net zero challenge, but more generally in the whole innovation space. And we understand the government's due to publish an innovation strategy in the coming weeks. I think what what would you like to see inside that strategy? What would you like to see government doing? 
I mean, we we keep discussing collaboration and partnership, but that is completely key to innovation. And I also keep mentioning funding, but I think that's the thing I also always go is like research and innovation isn't free. We we do need investment. We need the staff. We need the facilities and the equipment. But I think it's probably a case of flexibility and possibly in the way that universities traditionally work. I think there has been some modernization and kind of reduced bureaucracy through eKRLI funding. But I think it needs to be more flexible as to actually getting these solutions, but also to be a bit more joined up. I think I often, I had a question about a recent funding call from a colleague, which went, do you think we're going to, which is looking for really high risk early stage ideas. And I got to be, do you think we're going to do follow-up funding? And I went, well, it's not guaranteed. And I went, I'd, I'd hope, and I know there's many things at play, which means that don't happen, but I think that's a challenge. It's we're going, should we risk it for a year, but will we get funding after that point to do it? So I think a bit more, almost a plan of how do you progress that from an early stage? And again, it goes back to what are the current enablers and blockers? How do we get past them? And, and I know I've mentioned a number of those as well, but I think the whole system just needs to be a bit more joined up and coordinated, but not limiting. I did in a previous job, I did go slightly insane when I saw, uh, I think it was an innovation governance meeting, and I just went, innovation should never be governance to that extent. But I can also see that some governance can be helpful as well. And I think the the innovation strategy should model from initiatives that already work really well and we know work really well. I've, I've already mentioned SAT squared, but also I think we can learn from within models in the UK of what people, what uh, devolved nations are already doing. So in Scotland, they have amazing innovation support uh, in biotechnology industry, uh, partially driven off across the fact they have a huge amount of biomass coming out from uh, distilleries, but the government's responded to it and gone, we need to have solutions of how we convert this into useful products. But I think we can look at that and go, okay, that works in Scotland. What, what does that look like in this kind of sense of place model? So what do the industries look like? What do the solutions look like that we can build um, around that? And I'm also interested in people on culture side. So how are you going to actually value the people doing this work? And how are you going to roll this out across multiple sectors? Maybe it looks like a skills passport. I don't know. I think obviously we have an ingrained culture of doing degrees and masters and PhDs. But after that point, we don't really have a kind of, I guess, a national framework of actual, well, validating the training in, in, in any sense, but also particularly in innovation skills. And I think it's, again, it's, it's that bridging the valley of death. It's a lot of speak about what it looks like. And I think a review of the international funding would be interesting. We're already finding our feet again post-Brexit as to what does that relationship look like. But it can be really tricky to actually work with international businesses and actually um, to develop it. And, and when you're working in a really niche field, sometimes it's not a case of there's not a UK business available to work with. Sometimes it's a case of they're the only people in the world who are doing this type of thing, which could be transformative. And how to balance that is, is I know it's going to be tricky from a government perspective because we do want UK benefit from it. And a whole lot of different issues there. And we'll have to see exactly what the government come up with. Just to finish off, I wanted to tease out a little bit more on one of the issues that you were just talking about, which was people. And as well as the uh, the innovation strategy, we are expecting uh, a people and culture strategy for R&D from the government. And what's your view about the current state of UK R&D people issues to do with equality, diversity, inclusion, but also to do with careers and structures. You are not at the senior level of, of that position. So you are definitely experiencing it and going through it at the time. So what are your views that what could be included in, in the people and culture strategy? 
well, you know that this is one of my key passions. But I think the the strategy needs to address those factors that affect all staff in R and D, but also then consider how those how people with specific characteristics how does that differ and how they can they be enabled. I think coming at this from an HE angle. It's really difficult because at the moment we have many different metrics on diversity set at lots of different levels and some are given more priority than others which puts people with protected characteristics almost in competition with each other and i've seen it happen in other organizations this isn't just he specific but it's really difficult because we act- i'm actually going well everyone wants the same thing in terms of recognition a level playing field those those things are cohesive across it so how can we get everyone to be provided with that opportunity and I think it's that's kind of my overall thoughts on on what could be included in it. I think in terms of career structures at the moment, the precarity of academic contracts is a difficult thing. It puts a lot of people off from entering universities. But then I always go the upside of going, it's so flexible and actually quite supportive. And, and like I see the positives in it as well, but also get frustrated by the negatives um, as for everything. But I think maybe again it's looking at that skills passport of, of the movement between industry civil service academia uh, because that's going to support innovation because you'll be able to have really commercially aware people come in from industry into potentially government to influence policies but then potentially into universities that actually deliver the work as well so i can see massive benefit from from that happening and i think kind of the key issue from a big discussion across the cohort was actually thinking about a broader definition of R&D, not only including the guests of CBB academics, but technicians and knowledge exchange professionals and industry researchers and civil service staff, and actually just having this cohesive of, of R&D, but also R&D allied staff. And I know the UK and I have also recently kicked off their, I think it was 101 jobs in R&D campaign, which looked to do this. But I think we need to go further and actually look what do these career structures look like? And, also in the university funding model, how do you pay for these people? Because it can be really tricky unless you have institutional backing to actually fund their salaries. I think harmonization of processes, that, that's a dream. I don't know what it will look like, but again, it's when we get sent contracts from certain government places and it's in completely different language to the one that we work in. It can be tricky. And I think if we all use a similar language where possible, that, that would aid everything. But again, I know how tricky it will be to get to that stage. But I think it's also particularly about reward and transitioning across sectors. So, so ensuring that acceptance that something could be equivalent in civil service will be matched at the university. And I think the cross-cutting hybrid roles, kind of a bit like mine, um, but reframe the landscape would actually help support it. It's, I've worked in civil service for years and I've moved across to universities and I have a good awareness of both of those. But within the civil service, I was very industry facing. So I also have a really good understanding of how industry works. And have a very broad diversity of skill sets i've not been on a linear track but that's not currently rewarded in an in the current r d people system it's you should focus on one thing and i've kind of gone that's not really me and not where my skill sets lie so i'm just going to do what i do and i think we need to reshape how funding is allocated uh, i get really frustrated about the hero pi model because actually co-i uh, co-investigator is still not recognized on par with the pi when often you're actually completely integral to a project and you wouldn't be included in the project if your skill set didn't add something and i think we need to incentivize the fact that co-i is equivalent to pi or move away from having a pi and just have multiple co-i's because in these complex uh, and i guess tying back to the innovation thing of complex challenges the only way we're going to tackle these is by having interdisciplinary collaboration 
from multiple different backgrounds, which if you continue to focus on one, only one person is integral on a project, how are we ever going to solve these? A whole lot of different things there. We'll see how many of those the government pick up uh, in the people and culture strategy, but certainly the the issue of the fact that R&D is done by teams and teams of diverse skills across a whole range of different things, not all of whom are academics, has been made by many people in the discussions, and we'll have to see how the government responds to that. We could talk all day, but that's all we've got time for. So Rory Mars, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Rory Miles, Innovation Fellow at the Centre for Enzyme Innovation in the University of Portsmouth, and a member of the Foundation for Science and Technology's Foundation Future Leader Scheme. Details of the work of the Foundation, including our events, our blogs, the Foundation Future Leader Scheme, and all previous editions of this podcast, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. This is the last Foundation for Science and Technology podcast for a while, as we'll be taking a break over the summer. We'll be back with more podcasts in September. Until then, goodbye.